Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 3. You can turn there in your Bibles. You'll find, I think, it on page 1002 if, the, if you have one of the Bibles we've given you or if you grabbed the Bible off the back table. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Just a minute ago, we used that Heidelberg Catechism to confess what a Christian is. And it was a great definition of a Christian, one that I would encourage you to, to read again and study on your own. But there's one aspect of a Christian in our passage this morning that wasn't really highlighted in that definition. And I think it's one that is really important for how we understand our own walk with Christ. The book of Hebrews here, in just this passage and in other passages, defines a Christian as someone who endures to the end. A Christian is someone who endures in faith. That's part of what it means to be a genuine Christian. Someone who professes faith in Christ today as their Savior, and someone who keeps pressing in on that confession, who keeps clinging to Christ, who holds fast to Christ as their only hope in life and in death. We see this definition clearly this morning in verse 6 of our passage. Why don't we go ahead and read it now? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Listen to God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is God's word. This passage contains three comparisons between Moses and Jesus. So first, Moses is used as kind of the gold standard of faithfulness. Jesus is presented as being just as faithful to God as Moses was. And next, the author says that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the way that a master craftsman is more worthy of more glory than the building that he built. And then finally, Moses is called a servant in God's house, while Jesus is called the son over God's house. This morning, we're going to unpack what all of these comparisons mean throughout the sermon. But before we do that, I want you to notice that these comparisons are framed by first a command at the beginning and then a condition at the end. The command at the beginning is really simple. Verse 1 says, consider Jesus. That's the command. The author says that Jesus is our confession. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so as the audience of Hebrews faces various temptations and trials, he wants them to deliberately consider what is true about Jesus. Consider what Christians confess about who Jesus is and what he's done. Consider Jesus. And then the last verse contains a condition. We are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our hope. 
if you allow me to extend this house and building metaphor a little bit, if the first readers of Hebrews were to reject Jesus in favor of returning to the, the ways of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, it would have been as if they had forsaken the builder of the house to worship the house itself. Imagine them forsaking God so that they could have the rituals of the Mosaic Covenant and the temple. And the tragic irony is if they, if they really go through with that exchange and they try to keep the house, keep the, the furniture of the tabernacle or the temple and those rituals, they would actually lose the house altogether. So this command and the condition go together. If you consider the truth about Jesus, but then you turn away from him, you have no part in God's salvation. You're not part of God's house if you reject Jesus. This house image is a, is a picture not of an actual building, but of the people of God that God creates by saving them through Jesus. So Jesus is the source of the house. He's the, the son of God. He's the great high priest. And he's the confidence and hope of God's people. And if we reject Jesus, the author is telling us, we reject God himself. That's his argument in this passage. So this morning we're going to walk through these three comparisons between Jesus and Moses. And these comparisons proclaim three things about Jesus. First, Jesus is the faithful mediator. Jesus is the faithful mediator. Second, Jesus is the author of salvation. He is the author of salvation. And finally, Jesus is God's last word. Jesus is God's last word. If you're wanting to make sure you have that outline down, there are copies on the back table that have the outline and some application questions. So we're going to look at those th three things as we go through the passage. But as we do, I want us to constantly be mindful of the command and the condition. So we need to be considering Jesus as we go. Jesus the mediator. Jesus the author of salvation. Jesus God's last word. Consider Jesus and ask, are we holding fast to Jesus. So let's first look at Jesus, the faithful mediator. Jesus is the faithful mediator. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Before the, we get to the comparison, we need to look at, for a second at what Jesus is called here. The, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Faithful to God who appointed him. So this refers really back to the end of chapter 2. If you recall, there Jesus is called our faithful and merciful high priest. And the attention is drawn to what he does as high priest. He makes propitiation for his people. Through his heavenly service in God's throne room, Jesus turns away God's wrath from his people by offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Jesus has successfully made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. That's what Hebrews 1 taught us. And we see here that in doing so, Jesus has sanctified his brothers. So the author of Hebrews calls us Christ's holy brothers or my holy brothers. Jesus sanctified us by offering himself to God and paying for our sins. 
So that much kind of territory should be somewhat familiar after a couple of weeks in Hebrews. But it is somewhat strange here to see Jesus called an apostle. That's not a word that we typically refer or apply to Jesus. Usually it's Jesus' disciples, the apostles, who we use that word to describe. In in that sense, the word apostle simply means sent ones. So apostle is someone sent. But it also has kind of a more technical meaning in the New Testament. It means something like official legal representative. So Christ, Christ's apostles weren't just sent by him, but they were, they were authorized by him to represent him on earth. And they were specially commissioned to carry out the, the founding of the church on earth. And so here Jesus is said to have that same sort of role in relationship to God himself. Jesus is God's appointed apostle. Jesus on earth was the, the legal representative of God. He was commissioned to enact God's saving work as if God himself were doing it. And indeed, God himself was doing it. Jesus was commissioned to speak God's own words. And Jesus faithfully spoke all that the Father gave him to speak. Jesus is God's apostle. So in a sense, by calling Jesus God's apostle, he's kind of summing up for us yet again what he said, what the author said in the first four verses of Hebrews 1, that God has finally and ultimately spoken through Jesus, the Son of God. He is God's apostle. The author doesn't stop by calling Jesus apostle and high priest, but he says that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the one we confess so these titles aren't just descriptions of Jesus. You know, they're, they're not just sort of information that you'd find in the encyclopedia. These, these descriptions of Jesus are what Christians profess as gospel truth. We confess Jesus to be our apostle, our high priest. He was sent for us. He was sent to sanctify us. We confess that Jesus was sent to declare God's salvation to us. He was sent to turn God's wrath away from us and make purification for us, to wash us clean from our sins. Jesus makes us fit for fellowship with God through his high priestly work. The whole point of us studying Leviticus in the beginning of this year was we we were meant to see that Leviticus shows us that the way to God was through these tabernacle sacrifices. But all that was a pointer to Jesus as the great high priest who makes a way for us to have fellowship with God through his sacrifice. So with this confession in mind that Jesus is the the apostle and high priest of our confession, we can now turn to this comparison between Jesus and Moses. The author says that Jesus was faithful to God in this apostolic work, in this high priestly work, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus was faithful to God just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now that phrase, in all God's house, is not a kind of folksy expression like we'd say, come on up to the house. No, it's, it's a way of referring to Moses' unique saving role, or Moses' unique role in God's saving work. So just to recap, just a few of the things that are true about Moses. Moses was God's appointed mouthpiece in the Exodus story, right? He was commissioned by God to go and speak to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then Moses' staff, remember he has a staff, and his staff is kind of a a visible 
fleshly, you know, tangible picture of God's power, right? As he, he strikes things with the staff, he holds the staff out. The staff is kind of God's right arm. Moses' staff is God's right arm. It's, a, it's kind of a mystery of how God worked in that time. Then, of course, we know that Moses led Israel on God's behalf, and he judged and ruled over Israel. He was the leader in their spiritual life, and he represented them to God on Mount Sinai, and then he represented God to them as he proclaimed God's law to them. Moses led in the construction of the tabernacle. And we even see Moses serving as a priest, right? Before Aaron can be consecrated as priest, Moses has to offer the first sacrifices and anoint Aaron. So Moses is kind of the the priest behind the priest. He's the priest that sanctifies the priests. All of this together shows us that until Jesus, biblically speaking, Moses was the mediator between God and man. If you want to pick out one figure who kind of embodies all this mediator work, It's Moses. And the author not only says Moses did this work, but he draws special attention to Moses' faithfulness in all God's house. In all of these many offices that he held, he was faithful. I think it's somewhat common in our day, in a kind of a day where we don't really have any heroes anymore, that whenever we see a biblical figure, we want to say, yeah, but he was a sinner like us too. And we want to tell the story about Moses getting angry or Moses' failure in this way and that. But this is not the place to dwell on Moses' flaws. Moses is proclaimed here as faithful in all God's house. He was the faithful mediator. He served God and he served the people faithfully. The imagery of God's house here is complex. Again, on the surface, maybe it reminds us first of the tabernacle or the temple. But it includes that and much more. Ultimately, God's house is God's people redeemed by God's power. Again, we see that definition very clearly in verse 6. We are God's house, right? So in all of God's work of saving people for himself and building his house, Moses was a faithful servant. Moses was a faithful mediator between God and man. So now we're going to go compare to Moses. And so I I lay all that out for you because I want you to see this is not a comparison to denigrate Moses. This is not a comparison that says Moses was bad, but Jesus is good. This is the comparison that says Moses was wonderfully faithful. Jesus is just as faithful and more. These things are maybe not things that are always top of mind for us when we think of Moses, but they would have been top of mind for the readers of this letter. They would have held Moses in very high regard. And so that's why it really really means something for the author to say Jesus was faithful like Moses. It's not in any way denigrating Jesus. It's saying Moses was really faithful. Jesus is the faithful high priest and apostle. And by saying this, we're saying Jesus is the faithful mediator between God and man. Just as Moses played his role in God's saving work between man and God in the old covenant, Jesus is the mediator now. God has spoken through Jesus. He is God's faithful apostle and high priest. He's that prophet that Moses himself prophesied about. There is one to come, a prophet like me, who you should listen to. So even though it's not explicit here, Jesus exceeds Moses as a mediator. Jesus is not only sent by God, but he's God himself. Again, Hebrews has been laying the groundwork for us to see this. 
Jesus not only ministers as a high priest in the tabernacle, he ministers in God's heavenly throne room, of which the tabernacle was just a shadowy copy. In short, the argument here is, Moses was great, but if you want to listen to Moses' God, you must listen to Jesus. You must listen to Jesus, the faithful mediator. If you want to draw near to God, don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. Go to Jesus. He is the high priest. In the letter, the author can assume that his readers do want these things. They do want to draw near to God. They do want to hear from God. They want to be part of God's house. He can assume that's true of them. Of course, in our context, we can't assume that's true. Now, again, in a, in a church service here, we assume most of you want that. But even there, we, we pray that we'll have unbelievers joining with us sometimes. And we can't assume that our, our neighbor or our co-worker is going to want to be part of God's house or want to be drawing near to God. And so we have to ask, do you understand that you need God? Do you understand that God put you on the earth for a reason? Or why do you think you're here? Maybe a better place to start. Why do you exist? How do you answer that question? Well, God's word for you is that he put you here and he put you here to worship him. He put you here to have fellowship with him and that true life is found in having fellowship with God. The truth of the scriptures is that you were made for that, that fellowship, but you rejected God, the one who made you and gave you life. You spent your affections on yourself, on your own pleasure or your own comfort, your own ambition, your own security, your own wealth, many good things. But when we seek those things apart from God, they become idols that lead to death. You've looked to all these things to create a picture of yourself that you can live with, but you've done that without a thought to the one who made you and put you here. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, to people like that, you need a mediator. You need someone to declare the truth about God to you, to give you the truth about who God is and why you're here. And because of your sin, you need someone to bring you to God, to purify you, to wash you and make you clean, to pay the price that your sins deserve. And that's who Jesus is. He is the faithful mediator. He's God himself who became a man in order to reveal God to us. And what Jesus shows us about God is that God is merciful and faithful to people who've rejected him. That God was willing to come and die to pay the price we deserve for rejecting him. And he rose from the dead as proof of his righteousness. He is perfectly just and holy and righteous. And he is perfectly merciful and loving and gracious. So Jesus didn't die for any sin of his own. So he, death has no claim on him. And so he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he presented his offering to God as payment for our sins and God received it and Jesus sat down on God's throne for eternity. Jesus is the faithful apostle and high priest. And all those who confess Jesus as the faithful mediator, the faithful apostle and high priest, all those who confess him like that, they are saved. 
by him. And so the crucified and risen Christ calls from his throne and says, repent and believe in me and I will save you. If you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, today is the day to do that. Turn to him. Come to him and he will receive you. Repent of the ways you've rejected him and trust in his saving work for you. Trust in Jesus as the one God appointed to bring sinners to God. Consider Jesus the faithful mediator. We see clearly he's the one, the mediator who saves sinners, but it's interesting here that this proclamation of Jesus is not really aimed at unbelievers. It's aimed at the Christians reading this letter. It's framed with this condition, remember, that we are to hold fast to Jesus. If, if we hold fast, we are God's house. So we're called to hold fast to Jesus specifically as our mediator. This is a call to confidence in Christ's work on our behalf. The New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner translates verse 6 like this. It's a call to hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Notice that there's kind of a funny phrase there that, that we're to hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That word boasting has this idea of confidence. We're to have confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We're to have confidence in his mediatorial work for us. And so are you glorifying Jesus as your faithful mediator? To put this in perhaps the most practical way, when you sin, do you turn to Christ? Or do you turn somewhere else? Do you try to clean yourself up or find a way to forget about the, the bad thing you've done? Or do you turn to your faithful high priest? Do you trust that Jesus has washed you and cleansed you by his blood? Do you rejoice that you can enter God's presence through Christ's blood? Or are you trying to bring yourself to God somehow? Are you ignoring your need for God altogether? You see, the condition here in verse 6, if we hold fast to Christ as our hope and confidence, this condition isn't meant to trample on anyone in their weakness. God does not kick us when we're down. The point here is not to say, your faith is not strong enough. No, the point here is to show how mighty and wonderful Jesus' work is. Jesus shows us who God is in only the way that the Son of God can. His priestly work is all that we need to save us. The goal of the author of Hebrews is that we should never stop relying on God's mercy in Christ. That when we sin, we remember Christ. That we have an advocate with the Father. The author of Hebrews' goal is that we should never abandon Christ as our sure and certain hope for salvation. And so the way we glorify Christ as mediator is by trusting in his work for us. Trusting in the way he tells us the truth about God and the way he washes us clean of our sin. Jesus is the faithful mediator. He declares God to us as God's apostle and he faithfully purifies us as God's high priests. 
He faithfully obeyed as the suffering servant. He faithfully died as the Lamb of God. And now he faithfully reigns as the exalted king. You never need to doubt the power and goodness of Jesus the mediator. He is our faithful mediator. So consider him and hold fast to him. The next comparison is in verses 3 and 4. And the author sort of stays with the image of the house. He, he kind of stays with it, but also modifies it a bit. He says that Jesus is like a master architect and builder of a house, while Moses is presented as a fixture in the house, maybe a, a prominent beam in the house. Or we could translate house as something like household. And then we would see Jesus as sort of like the, the faithful patriarch of a great family. And Moses is a prominent member of the family. John and I were talking this week that none of us really know who built our house. So when the author says, you know who the, everyone knows someone built that house. Well, if you, you know, you might know because you bought the house from the builder, but for most of us, the builder doesn't really stand out, right? The doors are crooked, right? The walls are wavy. We don't, you typically live in finely crafted homes. But if you have any interest in architecture, then you do know there are some pretty famous builders out there, right? There are, or you look at older, older houses that were built by, by craftsmen and there's carving in the millwork, right? Or there's, there's stonework outside that just takes your breath away and you realize ah, no one who lives today could afford that, you know? So, so we don't really know about master craftsmen the way perhaps they did when each stone in a, in a great building would have been hand-hewn. But we can see that the, the image works here if we think about maybe high architecture or a, a beautiful painting, right? It's not, the, it's not the painting itself that gets all the honor, but it's the one who made it, right? That's a Frank Lloyd Wright. That's a, that's a Rembrandt. The builder, the maker, is worthy of more honor. So let's read these, this second comparison in verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The ultimate payoff of this comparison is to present Jesus as the divine builder of the house, right? He is like God himself. God is the builder of all things, and Jesus is the builder of, of God's house, in the first comparison, Moses' faithfulness was kind of the basis of comparison, the very high bar, right? But in this comparison, it's clear Jesus is presented as greater. Jesus is worthy of greater glory because he shares in the glory of God, the builder of all things. For the first readers, there's a strong warning wrapped up in this comparison, right? If they forsake Moses... Again, that's like choosing to worship the temple instead of the God who created the temple. The people here are in danger of choosing the rituals and practices of the Mosaic covenant over God himself. But the author is saying, look, Jesus is the author of the Mosaic covenant. He's the builder of it. He's the builder of God's household. The author is telling his readers, if you want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then you must not turn away from Jesus. If you want to hear from Yahweh, who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, then you must listen to Jesus, who is the Lord enthroned in heaven. And this tells us something important about how to read our Bibles. The Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. 
As one of my favorite seminary professors put it, God has, as a master architect and builder, just one house. So the contrast or distinction between Moses and Christ is not between two different building projects, but has a reference to a single project, to one house. And so that's why we can read Leviticus and do a a five-week sermon series on it as Christians, because we see these tabernacle rituals presented in there in the book of Leviticus are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the way that sinners must walk in order to enter God's holy place and enjoy fellowship with God. Christ is the spotless lamb who pays for sins. Christ, by his spirit, empowers us to live pure lives unstained by the world. The Old and New Testaments are Christ's words. The second comparison comparison then calls us to consider Jesus as the author of salvation. So Jesus is not some unwilling victim of divine justice. Jesus is God himself. Along with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus, in perfect cooperation, he planned every detail of our salvation. As the Son of God, Jesus was there at the Red Sea, parting the waters for Israel and then inundating the Egyptian army. The Son of God willingly took on flesh. He was made a little lower than the angels, as we heard last week, so that he could die for sin. And so Jesus is both the Savior who died on a cross outside Jerusalem and the eternal God who decreed our salvation from eternity past and who planned the whole thing. He is worthy of all glory and honor as the one who originates our salvation. He is the author of it. And so we should ask, are we giving Christ the glory he deserves? Are we honoring him as the great builder of the people of God? We read earlier in that passage, uh, the parable, about how Jesus is the cornerstone the builders have rejected. We're to hold fast to Jesus. Are we holding fast to the author of our salvation? The first audience of Hebrews, again, is a kind of negative example. It seems that they were in danger of choosing the rituals of the Mosaic Covenant over the one who created those rituals and who fulfilled those rituals. I wonder if something similar happens to Christians when we begin to be more devoted to a particular church or maybe ministry than we are to Christ. You know, we often hear pastors, we share stories about, you know, someone who goes to maybe a a church that's older and dying and he sees there are some important things that need to change, but there's just nothing but resistance because the commitment is more to the traditions of the church than it is to the gospel. I wonder if we are in any danger of that. We get maybe territorial about what our church is doing, and we see other churches as competitors or or somehow less than us. But if we're holding fast to Christ as the author of salvation, we're going to celebrate gospel ministry wherever it's happening. We'll be kingdom people, celebrating when God is at work. And one of the questions I've heard asked to pastors that's really convicting is, how will you feel if revival breaks out but at the church down the street. Can we rejoice in that? 
And that's one of the reasons we make it a point to pray regularly for other churches. It's, it's not just because we're trying to be nice and neighborly. It's because we want to cultivate a kingdom-mindedness, that our church is not the only church in town. And we want to see other churches planted and encouraged in church health. It's one of the reasons we joined Pillar Network in our recent church budget, because we see those pillar churches as like-minded and emphasizing the preaching of the gospel and, and healthy Baptist polity. And we want to see churches like that planted because we think that's the best way to see God's word proclaimed. So we want to be kingdom-minded people. And that begins with glorifying Jesus as the author of salvation. So if the, author, if, if the Hebrews audience maybe is a slightly negative example, they may be kind of territorial about their, their customs and rituals, I think Moses shows us what it means to cling to Christ as the author of salvation. As we already read this morning, Moses didn't see himself as the ultimate end of God's work, right? If there was anyone who maybe had a right to say, hey, don't, don't, don't look over me, right? Don't move past me. It was Moses, the great mediator. But even in his mediatorial work, He's prophesying about a prophet to come that they should listen to. Moses was content to be a faithful member in the house that Christ was building. He was content to point away from himself to the one who was building the house. And that's what we should aspire to. If we, if we want to be those who glorify the author of our salvation, we will seek to be faithful members in God's house. Not looking out for our own preferences, but seeking to encourage the work that God is doing. Is that your attitude? When you come to church, is that the attitude you bring? Not just looking out for what you want, but wanting to see gospel ministry encouraged, wanting to see God build his house through the proclamation of the gospel. It's worth noting there that we aren't the one who build God's house. At best, we can aspire to be faithful servants in the house. Right? At best, we are we're pieces of furniture that God uses to display his glory. But God is the one who builds the house. The words of the hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place, I think express the attitude well of someone who clings to Christ as the author of salvation. Listen to the first two stanzas. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? Why have I been included in God's house? I think one way to tell whether you're holding fast to Christ as the author of your salvation is if you have that kind of humility and wonder about being saved by God's grace. Holding fast to Christ should humble us. We didn't, deserve, we didn't do anything to deserve being included in God's house, right? We didn't deserve to be invited to God's table. There's nothing in us that merits salvation. All we bring to the equation is our sin. But Christ is the author of salvation, and he's full of mercy. This humility is also a bold humility, we are undeserving, but we know Christ is worthy of all honor. Christ, who is our confession, right? He is perfect in wisdom and power. And that's why we are to hold fast to Christ as our hope and our confidence with boldness. We're to boast in him, not in ourselves. 
Christ devised and accomplished salvation for sinners, for his enemies. There's no one else who can save, but Christ can. So are you confident in Christ's ability to save you? Christian, do you have confidence that Christ has made you clean? Do you come boldly to God's throne of grace? That's a passage from later in Hebrews. It's a, it's a theme that pervades the book. Because of what Christ has done, we boldly dare to enter where Christ is. This bold humility is essential for us in sharing the gospel with others. We preach the gospel boldly to our neighbors because we know that they have no hope without Jesus. We should boldly assume they need the gospel. We preach the gospel with humility because it was given to us by God's grace. We don't deserve to be included at the table, right? So don't beat them over the head or make them feel bad because they haven't achieved what we have. We know ourselves to be recipients of grace. So we boast in our Savior and we call people to believe in him. If we sense a a neglect in our hearts of, of sharing the gospel, if we're not faithful or seeking to do that, I wonder if it's because we're not holding fast to Christ as the author of salvation. We don't see his greatness in saving us and that this message is for all people. We've lost the wonder at being saved. So we're to cling to Christ. We're to hold fast to him as the author of salvation. Cultivate wonder and humility that you were included as a guest at Christ's table. The author of Hebrews calls us to repent of drifting away from Christ and to hold fast to Jesus as the author of salvation. Well, that's the second comparison. The third one we find in verse 5 in the beginning of verse 6. Let's read that again. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Here the author gets a little more specific about Moses' service. He was faithful in God's house as a servant by testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. Really, Moses' work is summed up here in terms of a prophetic ministry. He said to testify to those things that were to be spoken later, which is an interesting way to describe Prophecy, right? Usually we think about prophecy as predicting future events, right? But here Moses is predicting future revelation. He testifies to those things that were to be spoken later. To sum it up, we could say God has more to say than what he spoke through Moses and the covenant Moses administered. And it's important that we notice this speaking element because if we don't, I think we'll miss the full weight of the comparison here between Jesus and Moses. When the author brings Jesus in, in verse 6, he uses the title Christ for the first time in the book of Hebrews. He says that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And this is in contrast to Moses' serving as a servant. Now, the contrast between son and servant and and over and in seems to be, at first, simply about authority. So again, Moses is the servant in the house. Christ is the son over the house, sort of the image of Christ as, as the heir of the house. It all belongs to him. 
But we can't forget what we've just read about Moses and Moses' testimony about what was to be spoken. In the words of chapter 1, Moses testified about the last days when God would speak through his son, the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah. So Moses served in God's house by testifying about Christ, and his testimony about Christ points to Christ as God's ultimate word in salvation's story. Moses is saying there's something more to be said about how people will be saved. And that something is spoken through Jesus. So we're circling back yet again to those first four verses of Hebrews. In these last days, God has spoken through his son. God's last word is Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited savior of God's people, the one Moses prophesied about. Another way to put it is to use the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the promises God made find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So Christ is over God's house as a son because he finally and fully reveals God's gracious character and God's saving work. The blessings of peace with God and dwelling in God's presence were offered in a real but shadowy way in Moses, but now in Christ, sin has finally been dealt the death blow and God dwells with his people by the power of the Spirit. Sinners looking for a sure and certain hope need to look no further than Jesus Christ. We don't need to wait for anything more to be spoken, for any other greater word of salvation. That's not going to come. The great word, the final word, has been spoken through Jesus. And so in this word that God speaks through Jesus, the son over the house, we could say that God's house has entered a, a stage of completion. And we are God's house if we hold fast to this last word in Christ. Again, we shouldn't expect to hear any other revelation from God than what he has spoken through Christ and in the scriptures. Jesus is the son over God's house. He is God's final word, and we are his house if we hold fast to that word. All that we need for life and godliness is found in Christ. So we should be wary of any kind of teaching that de-emphasizes Christ or claims to add to Christ. We hold fast to Jesus. One very practical outworking of this is it should make us resistant to spiritual fads. So we, we should not be those who are, who are constantly on the lookout for the, the latest thing that claims to be a revelation from God. Whether that special revelation is claimed to come from the Book of Mormon or the Koran or from someone who claims to have experienced heaven in a near-death experience, we are not on the lookout for those things. We can safely ignore them. And knowing Jesus as God's last word also leads us not to expect that God is going to give us special revelations that are specific to our lives. Instead, we, we trust in what God has revealed in Christ, and we live within the boundaries that God has established. There's, there's a freedom within God's fence to do what seems right to us. We know that we've heard God's last word through Christ, and that word is enough. That word is sufficient to live a godly life. 
It's worth reiterating at this point, the point that Pastor John made in our first sermon on Hebrews, that when we consider this presentation of Christ as the final word, we're also to understand that the books of the New Testament cannot be separated from God's final word in Christ. So the New Testament is the word of the exalted Christ through his inspired apostolic witnesses. In other words, Jesus on the throne continues to work for a time on earth in a unique once and for all way in founding the church through the work of the apostles. And we see this in the book of Acts, which, in which the, the church is founded and then spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. It's a, a special time in salvation history. One of my seminary professors said that instead of calling the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, we should really call it the Acts of the Exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by him through the Apostles. Now, there's a reason that's not the title page in our Bibles, right? It's too much. But you get the sense of what's going on here. Christ is at work. The exalted Christ is at work by the outpouring of his spirit in founding the church through his apostles. We say this because Ephesians 2 tells us that Christ built his church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There was a unique foundation-laying work that Christ was doing during the age of the apostles. And you could say that the New Testament is the the written record of the exalted Christ's foundation-laying work. So when we want to hear God's ultimate saving word, the word that will never be superseded, we turn to Christ as he's revealed to us in the Old and New Testaments. Now, I admit we've gotten a bit deep in the weeds here, but it's worth diving in here because it directly informs the kind of church we are and the kind of Christians we want to be. So we understand ourselves to be part of God's spiritual house by his grace, striving to hold fast to the son who is over the house. And we do that by holding fast to Jesus as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. Our church's philosophy of ministry is built on trusting that God does his saving, life-giving work through his word, through his Holy Spirit-inspired word. And so practically what that means for us is that we preach the word. Our ministry is built on the idea that God works through the word. And it's not just our idea. That's God's revealed way of working. So we preach the word. We try to preach the gospel in the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We try to proclaim that Jesus is our confession. He is the mediator between God and man. We testify to what God has spoken through Christ. And we do this with confidence that this is the hope. This is how God is pleased to work. So our church is built on that idea. We're going we're to lean in to God's promise to work through the word by preaching the word, by encouraging you to attend to sermons and, and attend to the word yourselves. So that, that's the kind of Christians we want to be. We want to be Christians or, or church members who develop an appetite for Christ as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. We trust that God will change us into his image, that he will help us fight sin and persevere in faith by reading his word. So holding fast to Christ is not something we do by having, you know, mystical religious experiences at church retreats or or concerts. Those experiences may be good, but the way we hold fast to Christ is by the ordinary means of listening to his word day in and day out. 
by seeing Christ in the word. In John chapter 6, Jesus preached uh, what many disciples considered a very hard message, and many disciples left him. And Jesus asked the twelve if they also wanted to go away from him. And Peter answered, Lord, to who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Isn't that our confession too? There is nowhere else to go. And so we hold fast to Christ by his word. If you want to hold fast to Christ, strive to feed on his word. Be a person of the word. Read the scriptures. Talk with other Christians about the scriptures. Seek to understand what they teach. This is a good reason to find reliable Christian authors who, you can, who can help you understand the word and, and teach you the truths of God's word. Find songs that are full of God's word and make a practice of singing those songs because they will ingrain the truth of God's word in your heart. We hold fast to Jesus by our everyday feeding on Christ and his word. We are God's house if we hold fast to Christ and his life-giving word. The if there that begins that condition, if we hold fast to Christ and his life-giving word, may seem scary to you, especially if you've struggled with assurance. It sounds like the author is making this all contingent on you having the right kind of faith. Maybe he's suggesting we can lose our salvation. But we know that's not true. Christ loses none that the Father gives to him. And we also see here in verse 6 that the author calls Christians to have confidence and, and hope in Christ, to boast in our hope, right? We're to boast in him because the promise of salvation in Christ is a sure thing. Because of Christ, we sinners can come boldly to God's throne of grace. So none who truly belong to Jesus can fall away from him. But we do need to see that we can be deceived about our spiritual state. We may think of ourselves as part of God's house when really we are not. But we need to see that the test of our genuineness is not a rapid test. It's a lifetime test. It's something that's finally revealed when we hold fast to Christ until the end. Genuine faith is enduring faith. Remember back to chapter 2, the author began by warning us not to drift away from the great salvation revealed in Christ. So the condition in chapter 3, verse 6 is just another way of saying the same thing. Don't drift away from that great salvation. Don't drift away from the one who saves. Hold fast to him. But this is not to say that salvation depends on us. Remember what our holding fast means. We've talked about Christ this morning as our, our faithful mediator, as the author of salvation, as the last word of God. So holding fast to Christ means relying on him as your merciful and savior and high priest. Holding fast means we trust in what Jesus has done to save us. Hold fast by boldly believing that God is able to do what he promises, that he is able to forgive sin in Christ's name. Hold fast to Christ by resting in what he's done for us. Maybe the most important aspect of holding fast to Christ is how we hold fast to Jesus when we sin. 
to be clear then, holding fast to Christ doesn't mean we never sin. Those who hold fast to Christ do sin, but we hold fast to Christ by remembering that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Sinning saints hold fast to Christ by repenting of our sin. The great sign that you're not holding fast to Christ is unrepentance and unwillingness to listen to God's word. So we hold fast to Christ by listening to Christ and obeying him, and even that obedience is empowered by the spirit of Christ. In short, the if here doesn't need to scare us because holding fast to Christ is much more about what Jesus has done than what we do. It's resting, trusting, relying on Christ. Imagine someone in the middle of the ocean in a lifeboat, and they're, they're in the middle of shark-infested waters. And these sharks are getting aggressive. They can smell things are not going well. They start bumping the little boat. But the boat is sound. So to, to hold fast, the, the call to hold fast to Christ would be like calling to that man in the boat, don't jump out of the boat. Don't even dip your toe in. The sharks will eat it. Don't believe your hallucinations that there's an oasis around the way. The boat is strong and it will get you to shore. But Jesus is much greater than any lifeboat. The call to hold fast is not about our strength. It's about Jesus' power to save. He is the faithful mediator. He's the author of salvation. He is God's last word. And we don't hold fast merely because we're scared of the sharks out there. We hold fast because of what a great salvation we have in him. Jesus is our confidence. He is our hope. Don't drift away. Hold fast to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help to hold fast. We pray for you to make us into a church where we help each other hold fast to the end, where we're continually pointing each other to, to Jesus as your great word of salvation, where we're fighting sin, where when we sin, we repent and come to Christ and we celebrate the forgiveness that you provide. Father, help us not to ever heap shame upon those who repent but to rejoice in the salvation that Christ purchased. Help us to rely on him as our faithful mediator, as the author of our salvation, as the great word of salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.